Welcome to Quest with Kirk Durston. I'm your host, Sheldon Kotick. You can subscribe on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to give us five stars if you like it. If you don't like it, please tell us why. And now, Quest with Kirk Durston. Good morning, afternoon, Kirk. How are you doing? I'm doing well, uh, Sheldon. How about yourself? Doing good. Uh, just got got in from uh, snow blowing the driveway. Uh, we, we've got a uh, pretty good snow going on here. It'll probably be a three yeah. snow blower day. Where? Oh boy! Yeah, it's uh, beautiful. Well, I I like to uh, where I live. I live out in the country, so I can just save up all my snow blowing most of the time to one big blow, usually the next day, mm. unless there's some I'm expecting somebody. I live down in southern Ontario, which is, I think, one of the nice things about southern Ontario is that it's next door to Paradise, which I describe as Manitoba. Oh, yes. So yeah. it's. Yeah, that, that's one that's, word. That's for where it. I grew up. <laughs> I grew up. And I'm in Manitoba. Manitoba. And uh, I do have to say, and I know I uh, discussed this with you a little bit about, a little bit, Kirk, is uh, I got a, a message from. Um, the Manitoba Chamber of Commerce uh, saying, well, it wasn't really a Manitoba Chamber of Commerce. It just sounded like it, saying that I needed to be nicer to Manitoba and, and discuss the good things about Manitoba. For example, house prices compared to Vancouver, very nice. Uh, you can get a, a beautiful home here for about 300000 uh, which in Vancouver, wow. you can't get anything for $300,000. Um, no, it's same here. Yeah. Yeah, same in Ontario here. Like three hundred thousand will get you maybe a, a porta potty rental for a month, but it won't get you a house. Yeah. So no, there, I, uh, there's I that in Manitoba, but um, the other part about Manitoba in the winter, because uh, they don't really discuss the winter a whole lot in the tourism Manitoba videos, um, but we do have uh, good ice fishing here. So Kirk, you you were telling me about an ice fishing story. Um, yeah. You, you got to discuss this because oh. this, this is good stuff. I have really good memories of ice fishing back when we lived uh, in Manitoba. We lived about 200 miles northwest of Winnipeg. And uh, <clears throat> the very first time I went out real ice fishing, like I'd make a little hole in the farm pond and fish for minnows, but that doesn't really count. Dad finally, I persuaded him. So we went out there and it took us a solid hour to get through. It was five feet thick, that ice, five feet thick. And it took us a solid hour, starting with an ax. And then we finished off with a crowbar down when it got too deep to swing an axe anymore but we got a really nice northern pike as a result very nice um and northern pike great fish that's a that's a yeah, good eating fish love them that's um, what i grew up on uh well we i didn't do a lot of ice fishing when i was a kid uh, mainly because we were always skating but the um my uh, good memories of uh fishing in a, as a kid we were in saskatchewan at the time and it was uh uh, up by Prince Albert, there's some beautiful lakes up there and uh, going fishing up there. That's good childhood memories, good childhood memories. A, a key a key uh, item for good ice fishing is to have a bonfire on shore. Mm. Just start a fire first, then do your whole and fish. And you can come back to the bonfire and sit around, eat, drink hot chocolate, wait for your tip-up flag to pop up, meaning you got a fish online and... Those are really good memories. And one time when we got bored, we just got the car uh, driving around on the lake with me, the boys and I, my kids and I. Of course, that ice being, you know, like 
probably at that time three feet thick. Uh, there's no danger of falling through the ice when it's three feet thick, especially if you've watched ice road truckers. Mm -hmm. And we just had a ball uh, driving around on Lake Dauphin. Good stuff. Um, before we get into the uh, the boycotting, canceling, and big trucks discussion we're going to have today, I wanted to talk a little about the video that you did um, yesterday uh, that was released uh, with uh, Mr. Dawkins, uh, sharing some thoughts on um, on why he doesn't think there should even really be a discussion about God. It doesn't make sense to him. But uh, when uh, before we do that, if you are um coming to our channel for the first time please subscribe uh like the video hit the little bell to be notified of uh future videos we are doing these live streams once a week and then uh kirk is also posting some reaction videos like the one he did yesterday every once in a while as well so uh do that uh and if you're watching live stream feel free to comment and if you aren't watching the live stream feel free to comment as well we do read those even after uh, the videos are up for a while so uh, we would love to hear your thoughts, your feedback. And if you have questions for Kirk, uh, feel free to post those uh, in the comments or on his website, kirkdurston.com. So um, I watched uh, the video this morning that you had posted, the reaction. And uh, why, why don't you share a little bit about, uh, about Mr. Dawkins? Because uh, some people may not know um, who, who this person is okay. and why you, why you reacted. <laughs> yeah. Well, Richard Dawkins is probably the most famous atheist in the world right now that's alive. And he lives in the UK and he has a huge following. He's published a number of like uh, popular level books on different things. And uh, he basically has some videos online and I he had a short one. I thought, oh, that's nice. About two and a half minutes long, his video was. I'll just see what it says and comment on it. And uh, he the he basically said there were five best reasons that um, there is no God. And uh, can you can you quickly go through those? Do you have them? Uh, probably off the top of my head. Uh, number one is that he um, he said that uh, well, one of the arguments for God's existence. Oh, his first reason is that there are no reasons. Oh yes, and that was uh, my favorite so reason. That's one reason because there's no reasons. Um, but my response was that he should just check out uh, first-year philosophy courses on his own university there. And what he'll find is that usually for most first-year courses, there's a section of the course that deals with arguments for the existence of God. Now, whether they're compelling or not is a different issue, but there are arguments for the existence of God, and those constitute reasons. So um, it's quite simply it's false when he says there are no reasons to believe in God and then he says it's the onus on the theist to provide reasons and well you know there are reasons the theist has provided reasons even on an academic level there are reasons and so actually once you have reasons on the table or arguments and uh, once you have uh, some sort of evidence just how good it is is up for discussion then the onus is actually on the atheist to explain why he would deny the existence of God despite the reasons or the evidence. And then he went on to, uh, you know, life seems to be designed. And most people admit that, whether they're atheist biologists or theist biologists, they says it looks designed. But then he says that Darwin explained why we have this design there. 
And that's, um, I hear that a lot. Like, oh, okay, you know, Darwin explained how come life looks so highly designed. But um, an, a scientific, an, an explanation that cannot be scientifically tested and reproduced is really a creative story. Maybe a science fiction story, but it's a creative story. It, we can't, we've we got to be sure not to call it science. And in this case, um, uh, Charles Darwin presented a series of creative stories and scenarios and observations, which all work beautifully when it comes to evolving or variation within existing life forms, where natural selection is very good at fine tuning. Mm -hmm. But when we test it as far as vertical evolution, and we define vertical as evolution as producing novel life forms, moving upwards, maybe more, say, moving from a sponge to something more complex. Well, it, it actually completely is, we, we fail, we fail. When we try and test it, try and reproduce that, we cannot reproduce vertical evolution. Now, as, just uh, now, interrupt, Kirk. Um, you're yep. not saying this because uh, you read it in a book somewhere. Uh, you've got a little bit of uh, schooling around this yeah. idea. What, yeah. What's your uh, PhD in? Well, it was in biophysics, and I specialized in um, information coded in biopolymers, functional information, like it coded in proteins, DNA, RNA. And so the question is, if you want, say, Darwinian processes to produce all the life forms we have on Earth today, that all reduces down to the question, well, can Darwinian processes produce this extremely high level of digital information that we see in, re required in the DNA. And we can test that either computationally by building computational models and running them and seeing what happens, or we can just go into nature and accelerate. We remove the luck factor so we can greatly accelerate the process of evolution to see if it just keeps on going or do we hit a wall. And in every case, we hit a wall. And the wall now, we understand what that is. Basically, uh, horizontal ev evolution, or more accurately, variation controlled by natural selection or, or driven by it, and random genetic drift and so forth, that uh, only modifies the existing information. Uh, the quantum leap to, to code for a completely novel functional gene is vastly beyond even our universe's capability of producing, which I, I can demonstrate. Well, I... I, I just think of, let's just say, hypothetically, there was something that happened a few years ago that um, maybe was created uh, in a laboratory somewhere or, uh, or just got out naturally. We don't know. Let's just say it's a hypothetical, so let's just say it's in a lab. Yeah. So somebody designed it or did some work on it around how, mm -hmm. how do we make this thing work better than it is right now how do we make it more potent whatever the word is i don't i don't know yeah. but like hypothetically let's just say it got out and then it, the variants happen do we know of any situation where the variants ever get more complicated and better like in dark okay like better is the better is the key word here because you natural like when you have uh, a gene with digital information. It's like a sentence that somebody says. They might say, I would like to order a hamburger from the restaurant down the street. Now, we all know there's a ton of different ways you could say that. And some of those ways are better than others, but all of them basically 
are dependent on alphabet characters or symbols and so forth. So what uh, variation does, mutation does, is it changes the symbols. It changes the alphabet characters. And most of the time, it just goes in the direction of nonsense. Like if you, if I randomly changed a few alphabet characters in a sentence that you, you made, it's not likely I would improve the sentence unless you are really bad. But it's not likely I would improve the sentence. More likely, it would degenerate the meaning of the sentence. And that's exactly what we see in nature. But occasionally, you can get a mutation that might actually help it survive in some way. But all you've done is change the information slightly, change it on a horizontal level. And when you're measuring the information for a gene, you're not just looking at one sentence. You're looking at the whole pile. So, And that whole pile includes all the possible mutations, including the ones that might work slightly better, slightly worse. And so when you're measuring that, no, no. Uh, you can get a mutation that will enhance the particular function of that protein. Like hypothetically, bit. it might make it more... Uh, able to produce itself. Yeah, maybe it can replicate faster. Like, for example, maybe we've noticed that certain times a virus, after a number of mutations, is able to replicate faster. But it's still the same protein. It's just found a better combination within a very tightly constrained selection of combinations that actually work. But if you step outside of that, you've get, you get a, like an ocean of non-functional sequence space and that ocean is so huge that if you want to find a new gene somewhere we're not talking about a new variation but a whole new gene it will never happen on average for the average gene anywhere in the universe actually now can can it be created a new gene be created in a lab somewhere by people yeah. that have a skill in design those kind of things yeah, by, by actually looking at biological genes, we've been able to create artificial genes, which then produce artificial proteins, but they're very simple. Like, we have a ton to learn in, in how to do this. Basically, it's like somebody who's just learned to read, taking out a volume by Charles Dickens, and they don't really have the skill to write that way. But by studying certain things about Charles Dickens, you can mimic certain things. You might copy certain phrases and copy a sentence here or whatever. And that's basically where we're at. Now we're learning the rules of functional proteins. And so we're actually plagiarizing. We're, we're, or maybe to be more charitable, we're reverse engineering. A super intelligence has designed the genetic information that codes for a particular three-dimensional protein. Now we have to figure out what rules that superintelligence has created to do what it does, to fold properly and be functional. That's where we're at now. And once, as we learn those rules, we can start making our own artificial proteins, but they're really quite simple. It's like we're just learning to write letters right now by looking at a masterpiece over there. So he, he talks about a few other questions. He, he brings up personal experience, first cause, and yeah. then Pascal's mm -hmm. wager. Um, we don't need to go into that this video. You did a pretty good do job uh, discussing some responses um, in your previous video, so I highly recommend everybody goes and watches that. Um, but he, he made this comment, and I think it would be fun to play around with this a little bit. He said, a universe with a god would be a very different kind of universe than one without. <laughs> he didn't really go into that very much. 
Has he gone into that conversation with himself in any of his books that you know of? I haven't read any of his stuff, so. Well, there are a few famous quotes where that apply to that expand on that statement that he made, and I can't quote it uh, verbatim. But the bottom line, or the general gist of the quote, is, is that we see a lot of horrific things in this world, things which we would not expect if actually there is a perfectly good God out there. Now, that doesn't mean there's no God out there. It just means that there's not a perfectly good one, at least as far as we can see. And so that's probably what he's talking about is that it'd be a very different one. But as a philosopher who's looked into this a lot more than Dawkins has, there's a ton of differences between a universe where there was no God. First of all, you wouldn't get a universe. You wouldn't get nature itself because nature had a beginning. And just as a woman cannot give birth to herself, so you cannot have a natural explanation for the origin of natural explanations. It's got to have something that's not natural. So there, right off the bat, you're not going to get a universe, anything at all. You just have absolutely nothing. Uh, no nature, that is. There'll be no nature. And it, let's say you did get a universe. Let's say, you know. Magic. A miracle occurs. A miracle, magic. And uh, you get a universe. Well, it's like dumping out a pile of dirt on the floor and, and expecting to get anything other than a pile of dirt on the floor. Like, you would have... Where would the laws of physics come from, for example? Like, would you get those by magic too? Um, and then what about how the universe is going to work? Like, there seems to be, especially when life is concerned, life is the most um, designed thing we have seen in the universe other than the universe itself. The universe itself, most of the time, it wouldn't even be capable of supporting life. It's just a random pile of stuff dumped out. And in fact, um, who was it? Roger Penrose, a colleague of Stephen Hawking, crunched some numbers on this. And he says, the chance of getting, if you took all the possible universes capable of supporting life and compared that with all the possible universes where it doesn't matter whether they support life or not, if you had to land in that tiny subset of universes that are capable of supporting life, it'd be about one chance in 10 raised to the 10 raised to the Boy, I can't remember what the final number is, like 127th power, some ridiculous number. Um, it's not going to happen. Like that is, that takes incredible intelligence. And so what has happened is that some of the scientists who are thoroughly committed with religious devotion to atheism have come up with the idea that, uh, oh, well, then, Maybe it sure looks designed in that case. There's, it looks like there's a mind behind it. But the other alternative is maybe there's an infinite number of universes. So if you've got an infinite number of trials, then you're going to get one with that's capable of supporting life. In fact, you'll probably get an infinite. But um, that's kind of like the opposite of appealing to simplicity. You want to deny the one unseen thing you don't want to acknowledge and instead appeal to an infinite number of unseen things that are untestable. And so there's been responses to this in the literature, even in nature itself. There's been a couple of good articles that see who, um, basically pointing out, this is fantasy. Don't confuse this with science. We're now in the realm of fantasy, and it's actually a threat to the integrity of physics. Yeah, that so was, you, you, um, have somebody like, um, you have somebody like uh, Charles Darwin, who really, really wants to find another reason for our existence and, and for how nature has uh, happened. 
Um, you, you're starting with the um, worldview that there is no God, therefore there must be something else. And the, the interesting thing that I heard from Dawkins was that um, he said that, well, there's the first cause thing, Darwin solved that. But Darwin never really addressed where all of the material, where that initial first DNA came from. Mm -hmm. So Yeah, no, sorry, go ahead. So is, are we at a point where um, the, only, the only thing you can really hope for is a theory if you don't believe there's a God? Because there's no way you can scientifically prove anything at this point, is there? Uh, you mean regarding how did it all get started? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, like, I don't know 100%. There are people argue about what Charles Darwin actually believed when it came to the existence of God. And, I, and it's logically possible, and, and I know people who believe that, uh, who believe both in the existence of God and that life is a result of some Darwinian process. So they're... They're not logically incompatible. It's it is an option. Then you have to look at science and say, well, is this going to happen without a mind behind it? Now, a mind if a mind is behind evolution, then it's not really evolution as it commonly understood in the textbooks. Now it's being directed by an intelligent agent. So that's a different thing. And but there again, we can test that theory to see. Okay, let's see if we can make it happen. We're intelligent. But back to the first thing. No, I. I that's always the problem. And back in Darwin's time, the, the theory that the, the steady state theory of the universe was quite popular, and it was popular right up into the 1900s, and that is that the universe just keeps on, basically it's eternal. It just keeps on regenerating itself. So you don't need to worry about what caused the universe because it, it's always been there. And it's logically impossible to have to cause something that has no temporal beginning. It's, it's always existed. So if the universe has always existed, then we don't need to worry about what caused it. Uh, but then in the 20th century, we found, we made observations and saw, hey, wait a sec, no, this universe is expanding. And therefore, if you work backwards in time, it had a beginning. Now we know from mathematics, it has to have a beginning, not just science, but math. So Darwin um, it basically started mostly from what do we have? Let's say a, pri a, a planet, a primordial collection of molecules and atoms and elements. And uh, let's see where we can go from there. And I actually think his theory is very interesting. At the time, it would have been fascinating. And if I had lived at that time, I would have said, well, let's test this out. Even as a theist, I would say, well, we'll just test this out in case this is how this explains how God did it. You know, so it's it's um, very, very he, he was a thinker and I, I'm impressed with his thinking. But 150 years later, we we can reproduce the horizontal natural selection variation. And but we cannot we cannot get the vertical aspect going. It's just not reproducible. So everything we've talked about now is a set of ideas. It's mm -hmm. um, what what our worldview is, what what we've come to believe. Um, let's say we're in a different part of the of the planet where um, those the ideas that we've been talking about are not allowed to be talked about. 
uh, they've been yeah. canceled. Mm -hmm. Well, there are there are countries that that is very much the case. You could actually go to um, a work camp or be executed. I know one country in particular I've been into uh, where that is very much the case. You start talking about this stuff, you are done. You're finished. So you not only are your ideas canceled, but you'll probably get canceled yourself. And we're living in a society now where um, uh, the term in misinformation is used. And mm -hmm. uh, sometimes it's used properly where it's actually untrue um, what somebody is saying. Uh, it's a conspiracy theory that is uh, verified to be not true. Uh, it's a fact that it is not true. So there's, there's misinformation that way, but then there's also misinformation where people are discussing theories that have not been proven false that actually turn out a year and a bit later to be actually more true than what was initially thought of before. Now we can't mention any of those because we will literally get canceled from YouTube. We'll get canceled. <laughs> so, Instead of getting into um, that kind of uh, discussion around ex like real examples, let's use some mm -hmm. hypotheticals. Um, let's say, for example, um, we believe that there are fairies. Uh, uh, okay. Dawkins used the term fairies. So we believe there are fairies. Um, the world does not believe there are fairies. At what point do we, as a as a society, or maybe we don't believe there's fairies, but other people do, and and they have some some theory as to why there are fairies. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. We don't believe there's fairies. Should we, as a society, try and limit their ability to communicate to the rest of the world that there are fairies? <laughs> well you know we have to come up with some sort of criteria as to when is it justifiable to maybe um limit people's discussion of something or statements of discussing and when should we allow it now you might be surprised to know sheldon that i have actually met a very intelligent well-educated woman who believes or seems to believe uh, in fairies and uh, what do you call it? Gnomes and uh, I guess gnomes. Trolls? Uh, no, she's, I don't know if trolls are included or not. Um, but we were sitting one day and we were uh, just enjoying a snack, a, a group of us, and the subject came up and she actually believes these things. Now, she's from another country in northwestern uh, Europe. There's uh, some countries over there. And those are taken much more seriously than here. And what was my response, you know, to suddenly, okay, everybody, conversation's over. She just said some stuff we don't agree. No, I was fascinated by what she had to say. I want to hear what her reasons were. I want to hear why she thought that. And it was fascinating. And I think, um, in general, that really that there's no uh, there's no good reason at all and that's one of the things that we have to keep in mind now what if she had said or what if somebody else came along and said uh, you know i think and they said they, they took a view or position that is actually morally repugnant and the problem with censoring that person 
or creating a situation where that's all we throw a mat over it so they're talking amongst themselves under the mat but they don't go public is that we don't know what's going on under the mat and i've always appreciated honesty uh, i like to know what people really do think and if we have somebody over here who's thinking like some morally repugnant theory or let's say thinks for example kitty porn i can probably mention that i don't know if i can maybe i just got canceled yeah, but probably just if they think canceled, that's good but... yeah if they think that's good then um I'd like to know about that. And I think the authorities would like to know about it. We'd all like to know about that because now we have identified where the problem is and they might be saying their things, but there's another issue too in canceling people. And that is, um, let's say, let's say I wanted to come up with arguments against the existence of fairies. And, uh, but I haven't listened to that other person. So I don't even know what the evidence is. I don't know what their arguments are. So anything I come up with is basically, you know, probably going to be a, a straw man, as they say. It's going to be a pretty lame, maybe a cartoon version of people who believe in fairies. So I think if we want to, if we want to be able to respond in an intellectual and a solid way, in a rational way, we need to be able to know what the arguments are. We need to be able to engage those arguments. So I have actually been involved in around 80 plus or minus formal debates on university campuses and different places mm -hmm. um, where I formally debate people who I totally disagree with on some particular proposition. But in the course of the debate, I find it so enriching intellectually you get to understand the other side. The audience gets to understand both sides, and then they can draw their own conclusions. And at the end of the day, when you try and force conclusions on people, it really doesn't end well. You're, you're going down a dark road there. So why is that? Is it, is it um, or I guess, what comes first? Power or the need to cancel? Because like we, we know that with when there's an authoritarian reg regime, um, there's a desire to quench all thought outside of what that regime says. But does the power come first or the canceling? That's a tough question because it can, I think it's come, it can be either like people who feel the, who want power might want to muzzle or censor those people who they might feel are voicing arguments or statements that threaten that power. But then, as you mentioned, once you have achieved a level of power, they might want to um, keep that power uh, from being threatened by muzzling or censoring those people, those same people. I think there's more to it than just power, though. I think our culture today really wants... Um, there, there's this idea that nobody has the right to say things that offend me. Hmm. There's that very much. There's a proposition there. They might not voice it, but that seems to be the case. And uh, it might go further. Nobody has the right to say anything that'll offend anybody. And you might say, well, that's ridiculous. But if you think about it for a second, underneath that is another desire. And I think it's a good desire. The desire, let's all get along together. Hmm. And that's a good desire. We, we can applaud that. 
but then it's the methodology of how let's get all get along together. And we're going to all get along together by nobody's allowed to say anything that's going to offend anybody. And we'll all have to affirm everyone and whatever they say. Um, well, the, in reality, there's going to be people who actually disagree and they're going to feel marginalized, silenced. And that is not actually producing a cohesive, let's all get along together type of society. It's an artificial type of let's all get along together. And it has to be enforced through censoring. We're seeing a lot of that right now. It has to be enforced. Or even at a government level, it'll have to be enforced. And there's some countries today that will monitor their civilians with an enormous number of street cameras and computers constantly taking in the information and so forth. And if you step out of line, you lose points and there's restrictions. And if you really step out of line, you might disappear. But that has to be enforced. And, and so this, the desire is a good one. Let's all get along together. But the methodology is flawed and it fails to account for human nature and what happens when you, you have to stomp on somebody if you're going to take that route. Better to say, well, let's all mutually understand one another. And I found in my own life, there'll be somebody who says stuff and I just, oh man, that just, I am not happy with that person. But I have found time and time and time again that if I will sit down with that person over coffee, say, I'd like to, I'd like to hear more. <laughs> like, why do you say the things you're saying? And wow, I come away with a deeper understanding of the person, more compassion. And that is the way to start getting along with another, is to allow one another to voice what you think, discuss, and so forth. Now, there is a moral line somewhere where, you know, it's so terrible and where the major, vast majority of people say, no, this is morally repugnant. We can't have this kind of stuff being broadcast. Um, okay, there is, a, there is a moral line somewhere. And I guess that's where... Um... When we think of uh, some of the things that are being counseled right now, the moral line um, is very much a uh, written in sand. Like that line shifts depending yeah, on what per someone's beliefs are. So yeah. if you if it's based on feeling and feelings changed by the day. Uh, there's a there's an issue where what, that moral line is not based on anything, and so and a lot of times. Sorry, go ahead. Well, and and um, if you don't believe that morals are absolute, <laughs> that moral line is uh, is a problem. So, um, yeah. where what's your thoughts on that? Is there is there a line that we can we can as society? find when there's no such thing as absolute morality yeah well that's a that that is a whole discussion right there but i think there is a moral there is a moral line the problem is we humans all are affected by our own biases and our own culture and so the moral line gets real fuzzy it doesn't mean there's not one there it just gets real fuzzy can we find the moral line though? And I was interesting. I was talking with a senior sociologist at a think tank and he was, um, his whole department specialized on social uh, data from the, from the culture. And he told me that even if we had no concept of morality or ethics, what we're seeing arising out of the social sciences is we see there's some things 
that actually benefit and cause a society to flourish. There's other things that are destructive. And when you begin to look at all those things and say, okay, what rules might we come up with that arise out of the data from the social sciences? He says they were remarkably similar to what in the West we might call Judeo-Christian moral principles. But Judeo-Christian moral principles aren't just unique to Judeo-Christianity. Uh, there's other cultures around the world that have very similar principles that we might just call traditional morality. And what we're seeing is, well, there is a moral line out there. Uh, they might argue where this comes from, but there does definitely seem to be rules. But I think another thing that clouds it is our egos, pride, and, and especially on a political level. So let's say, for example, there's a protest and the people don't like how the protest is being done. But... And then they just react to that. But the real question is, what's the underlying point that they're trying to get and get forward? They might be right about that. I know personally, I have been, people have talked to me and say, Kirk, you're wrong. And they will be very like, like a jerk about it. They'll be in my face and just, you know, whatever. I don't like the way they're delivering their idea, but there have been times where, you know, okay, but I think he's right. I think he's right. And so that's where ego can get in the way. And that also causes confusion as to where this moral line is, because there's a moral line, there's an ego line. And the ego line is usually definitely off the moral line. And someone, some person, say a political leader, would be willing, for the sake of his own ego and not wanting to back down, to take his entire country down with him if his ego is getting in the way. Well, and so well, this that would is never happen, though, Kirk. That never happens. <laughs> well, you know, I, I'm not going to even hazard a guess as to where that might occur. But the point is not to point fingers here. I, I think really the point is to say, is my ego, does my ego get in the way mm -hmm. in what I want to censor and what I want to create misinformation on? And misinformation, it's seldom the case that just one side is perfectly pure and honest and the other side is just loaded with misinformation. That is very unlikely. Most of the time you'll see misinformation on both sides, but often one side will be a lot more guilty than the other side. So the other side might say, well, I don't like this protest, but what we're going to do is we're going to portray it as something morally repugnant or really unacceptable, disgusting. We'll portray it that way. And then a whole mass of misinformation is is promoted through the media and so forth to do that. In the meantime, there might be misinformation on the other side too. And you'll get videos and, oh, actually that video is not from this particular protest that was used in another, you know, that sort of thing. So the problem we all face is sifting through the information to see what corresponds to reality and what doesn't. And the problem with that is we live in echo chambers. If you're in social media, uh, an echo chamber is, you know, you're in this group and everybody, and you're in that group because you agree mostly with everybody that's saying stuff. And so everything you get is just reinforcing your beliefs. That group over there, totally different. And you talk to that person, you say, like, what planet did they come from? Like, they're so wrong. But you haven't taken the time to see what kind of information they're getting from their echo chamber. And that's a serious problem. The problem of echo chambers in today's culture. Mm-hmm. And like, I, I follow a lot of people on Twitter and I intentionally follow a lot of people that I do not agree with. And they would probably cancel me if, if they followed me in the first place. So, um, 
some of them do. I don't post a lot on Twitter. And if I do, I'm mainly just reacting and, and trying to be funny. But uh, I think it's, it's really important that we as Christians follow people we don't agree with mm. and into interact with them in a way that um, we can show that we actually care about them as people. It's very easy on social media to just look at the person's profile picture of them as a cat or whatever and Mm. and say, this person isn't real. Therefore I can do whatever I want. Um, when, When I'm interacting with people, I actually want to learn more about them. I want to listen to them. I want to hear, why do they believe that? What, what in their past has caused them to have that worldview because they usually have a reason to believe that. Mm-hmm. And until you can find out some of that, you're, you're just never going to have a conversation that you might even be able to change their mind around or yeah. have your mind adjusted a little bit because maybe you were a little mm-hmm. bit too staunchly yeah. f- uh, focused on one thing that isn't quite correct. And so, um, yeah, maybe your echo chamber is filtering out some good information mm-hmm. and, um, the other thing is with regard to hearing out the other person, it is extremely important for me. For example, there are certain areas that I'm interested in, that I write in, that I speak on. Most of my reading has been on people that I disagree with. I want to know what their problem is with what I'm defending. I want to know that. And if we just like wear blinders or blinkers so we don't see anything except what we agree with, when you stand up in a public forum and start defending that, you're going to get hammered. You're going to get blindsided by stuff you didn't even know about. So you really do need to know what the other side has to say. And the other thing you said, it's it's kind of respect. And we we are, as as like Jesus said, for example, love your neighbor as yourself. And that includes treating not just the neighbors that you like and say things that you agree with, but what about the ones you disagree with? Can you sit down with them and hear them out? And that is a, I may not respect the idea that they have, especially if it's kind of morally repugnant, but I have to respect the person and I respect the person by hearing them out, asking questions, trying to understand. And as you said, there's always a backstory, always a backstory. And I can think of some of the most heinous people I have met in this life, murderers, people who have committed terrible crimes. And I look at them, I used to look at them and say, that person is disgusting. But as I got to know some of these people, like, for example, I got to know one guy who'd done time for murder. Wow, what a backstory. And all of a sudden, the com- you start having compassion, like, what would I be like if I had grown up in his shoes? That's the next sobering thought. And once we have compassion for one another, then we can actually engage with one another and we're not censoring each other and canceling each other. Cancel is a modern day form of murder. It's, it's maybe not killing the physical body, but it's kind of making the person disappear. It's what happens in some of those countries where uh, what you say is tightly controlled. Well, um, We've seen over the last week. Uh, there's a lot of a uh, lot of this trying to uh, happen. Uh, certain groups on both sides, uh, left and right, are trying to cancel each other, and um, it's quite interesting seeing how uh, the actual ideas that are being talked about are ignored. 
and it's yeah. a word or a or a um, just a blanket statement like misinformation that is thrown around, mm-hmm. and it's the it's the old call somebody uh, the R word because uh, that will cancel them, and mm-hmm. eventually the it, that word doesn't mean anything anymore. Because it's been overused, yeah. it's been diluted it's, to the point it's it's just another insult now. And yeah, the the scope of what it means has been become so broad. It's just, and that that is another way of misinformation is when let's say you have fifty thousand people uh, upset about something, and let's say the media finds that oh, there's a one person over here and there's another person over there. You might have a total of say three or four. Mm-hmm. And that makes national news coverage. And the idea here is that this person here represents the 50,000 over here. And that's that's a form of misinformation. But in the end, uh, we all have to step back and say, okay, I don't whether or not you agree with what's happening over there, whatever protest it might be, what is it about? Like, what is the underlying problem that they want to address? And I find that a lot of protests that I don't at all like they're like some protests I've seen in, in other countries where they're looting stores and burning police cruisers and so forth. I don't agree with the method of protest there, but when you find out what the underlying issue is, well, I, I, I got a lot of sympathy for the underlying issue here. They just need to maybe <laughs> tweak their protest to be uh, not so off putting to so yeah, many and, people and focus the thing on the underlying issue. And you also have people that aren't actually part of the protest causing the problems oh, too. Of course. So, uh, which we're seeing on, again, on both sides. And it's quite interesting yeah. when you, when you take the cameraman from two years ago and put them in the, the protest now and just see what their focus is on and what the Ooh. Chiron says at the bottom of the news uh, news report. It's just it. What what just happened here? It, it's amazing the uh, the difference in how things are being reported on. And so um, yeah, interesting conversation. I I really enjoy digging into some of the current events that we're dealing with because uh, yeah, uh, I believe re- Revelation. There's a lot to it, and uh, we're getting close the way things are happening here and. Uh, well, yeah, it does well, make you think about the prophecies pertaining to the end of humanity. There are so many other factors mm-hmm. all converging. Yeah. Awesome. Well, we will talk to you again next week. And unless there's anything else you wanted to talk about today? Uh, no, I think we. this is a good spot to, <laughs> to take a pause, and yeah, we'll see what happens next week. Sounds good. Well, <laughs> probably, probably nothing. Oh, I don't know. I'm afraid to look at the news each morning when I get up. I just sort of brace myself and put the news on here. And, you know, is it safe to read? I'm afraid, you know, and that's sad when we live in a culture where the people no longer, a lot of people no longer trust the government. They don't trust the media. They don't trust each other. Uh, You know, but yet at the same time, I want to keep informed of what's going on. So it's kind of like, ah. you know, check it out. Yeah. Uh, everything is converging and, uh, yeah, I, I know the meme of the dumpster on fire 
flowing down the river is uh, is a pretty good uh, metaphor for today. But uh, the nice yeah. thing is, uh, as Christians, we do believe that God is in control. He's not surprised by any of it, any of it. And the yeah. people that are in charge, he put them there. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing we could do about that. And so, except pray, except pray. Uh, but again, he put them there. And so, and remember for the next election. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. No, Sheldon, you've raised a really good point, though. And that is, we can tend to put our faith in people or people's organizations or even a protest. We can put our faith in that rather than our faith in God. So my prayer in all the stuff that's going on is, I don't know what your plan is, God. I do not know. But I ask that you would preside over this and over our government and our last media, that you would steer this in the direction that you want it to go. And like you say, none of this is, but we are told thousands of years ago, actually, that it's going to be a dumpster fire towards the end in every case. I mean, all these different converging financial markets, moral free fall, uh, threats of war and outbreaks of plagues and so forth. It's all going to converge and it will be a dumpster fire. And so I take actually comfort in knowing that, hey, this isn't taking God by surprise. He knew it's coming. He told us 2000 years ago it would and even before then. So uh, now I just got to pray that basically the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And yeah. just watch what happens. Yeah, I, I was reading Second Thessalonians uh, two today about the man of lawlessness, and uh, the the comforting thing is, even in the midst of antichrist and all those things that uh, are uh, are still to come, it it does say. And you know what's restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And it's God's timing. It's not our timing. It's totally yeah. God's timing. And and uh, we are in for, he told us ahead of time, we might be in for a rough ride here mm-hmm. towards the end. And none of us like rough rides. I certainly don't. <laughs> but it's at least good to know it has a good ending. Mm-hmm. After Armageddon, that is. But it has a good ending. All right. Well, on that... On that, uh, <laughs> okay, the dumpster fire down the river, but uh, the, yeah. in the distance, there's a glimpse of heaven, which is where our hope yeah. is. So. All right, well, we will talk to you uh, next week again. Uh, we'll see you later. Mm-hmm.